It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, am I passionate or complacent about Jesus? Coming up in this episode, we all know the plain scriptural statement that believing in the Lord Jesus saves us. But what if taking that text at face value is a dangerous compromise to our faith? Even worse, what if our passion for Jesus is also suspect? We'll address these challenges with strong scriptural solutions. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. It's good to be with you. And Julie is also with us. Ah, nice to see you both <laughs> and hear you. It is good to hear you. <laughs> Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Philippians three thirteen, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Every Christian loves Jesus, and every Christian wants to be acceptable to him. None of us ever want to take his sacrifice on our behalf for granted. We don't want to fall into a pattern of complacency where we don't appreciate the blessings he gives us. While these are well-stated intentions, we need to dig in much deeper to see how to make them well-lived principles. How do we actually live our life, our love for Jesus, and what role does passion play in that life? Where do the dangers of complacency lurk? Is all passion positive? Is feeling content really expressing a lack of appreciation for what God does for us? A lot of questions, and fortunately the scriptures give us very clear answers to all of this. So let's dive right in. We've got two big things we're going to talk about today. We've got to talk about complacency, and we're going to talk about passion and put them into a scriptural perspective. Jonathan, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, define complacency for us. One, self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Two, an instance of usually unaware or uninformed self-satisfaction. So that's complacency. It has a lot to do with self-satisfaction. Julie, what about the meaning of passion? Passion's a strong feeling of enthusiasm or excitement for something or about doing something, but it can also mean a strong feeling, such as anger, that causes you to act in a dangerous way, and it can also mean a strong sexual or romantic feeling for someone. So we've got self-satisfaction, which is kind of, huh, and compassion, which is kind of, you know, you've got, you've got <laughs> both of those things going here, and yes, they both can work together. And yes, they can both be dangerous. So we want to develop all of this. Both complacency and passion can mess up our Christian walk. So how would that happen? Well, we want to unfold that. We're going to start with a soundbite from Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. It was a TED Talk by Bill Ekstrom. And we're going to drop into the middle of a thought. Mr. Ekstrom had lost his job. He was a high-level executive at a, at a large company. Life was good. Things were going well. He was on the fast track, and he was just enjoying everything that was happening in that environment. And then just he got fired, and it ruined him for a short time. It put him into a bad place, but he figured out 
what had happened, and how to create success from such failure. And so we're going to, he's going to be talking to us about these rings in our lives, and the first two rings he's going to introduce to us are the stagnation and chaos rings. So again, this is Bill Ekstrom, Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. Let me say that again. What makes you comfortable can ruin you, and only in a state of discomfort can you continually grow. Pretty quickly, I became motivated to start a new journey. And after a couple of years of work with my new team and a PhD friend at the University of Nebraska, we had this epiphany on how to illustrate and apply the science of discomfort and growth. We called the concept the growth rings. The growth rings represent living environments that promote or hinder growth. And that includes everything from your place of work to even a fishbowl. So the first growth ring represents a low-performing, low-growth environment called stagnation. Stagnation is understood by having to follow too many steps and permissions and minutia that stifles creativity, independent thought, and action. To imagine an environment such as this, think no further than our state and federal governments. Now the antithesis of stagnation is chaos, also low growth and low performing. Chaos can be caused by internal or external events or conditions. We see chaos occur at times in business mergers, natural disasters, and horrific events like 9-11. Chaos is having zero predictability or control over inputs and outcomes. And you know, he went on to say, what dictates the size of a goldfish is its environment. And while a fishbowl is safe, it's very limiting in most every way. They can grow to huge proportions when in a pond. So where we live, work, and play are the proverbial fishbowls that dictate our growth. And this has spiritual applications as well. So we've got this fishbowl of life. And in that fishbowl, we can have stagnation or chaos. At, at the beginning of our conversation here. So we want to focus on this in terms of our Christian life. What does this mean for our Christian life? Well, complacency, and Jonathan, you define that for us, a lot to do with self-satisfaction. Complacency focuses on the experiences of the past, and it focuses on the comfort of the present. Not just the present, but the comfort of the present. We're going to start with an example of complacency in action, as shown by the scribes and Pharisees. Now, this is in Jesus' words as he's describing the scribes and Pharisees to others in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 1 through 7. Let's do 1 through 4 to get started. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do the deeds uh, do according to their deeds, for they shall say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Well, Rick, I have a question. What chair? I don't picture Moses sitting around much. <laughs> Well, Jesus did describe them, sitting themselves, seated in the chair of Moses. And you're right, the idea is they're sitting in the place of authority. And the whole picture of sitting, you never saw Moses sit down. What you saw Moses is stand and lead and confront and deal with things. And that's the point. They took that high level of leadership and they made it a comfortable place to sit. And as a result, they took all that it stood for, and they watered it down. You know, you, 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 you get a, a, a drink of grape juice, and you, you get that tart grape 
sense to it, but you put a bunch of water in it, and it's like, what happened? Well, that's what they did. That's what they did to Moses. He, he became watered-down grape juice. In the midst of this complacent occupation of a position of spiritual authority, authority the scribes and Pharisees did display a level of passion. So how do you have complacency and passion at the same time? Well, let's go Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden the phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So they brought in their phylacteries. That's one of two small black leather cube-shaped cases containing the Torah text written on parchment. Now, uh, uh, observant Jews today do this, where one is strapped around, it's a leather strap, and it's the, the cube is worn on the arm facing the heart, and the other's on the forehead. It's a reminder to fulfill the law with head and heart. So here, the Pharisees were making sure that their tassels on their clothing were larger than normal size, and their phylacteries were broader. They were making sure to be noticed, their superior piety. And for us, this might be making sure everyone knows our good deeds or how much money we give to charity. Well, I remember when I was a child going to church, I, I noticed that the minister would wear different color robes and different color scarves that would stretch all the way to the ground, just like you, you mentioned, Julie. And I was always very confused because coming from Bible study, you know, Sunday school and going to the church service, we learned about Jesus and the disciples. And I did not picture any of them the way I pictured the way this minister looked. It was very confusing as a boy to and, me. And, and what we want to stay away from is the lauding of a position. What we want to focus on is the executing of the responsibility. That's the difference, and that's what the Pharisees were completely off on, and that's what Jesus called them out on. Uh, complacency actually gives permission for passion to thrive as long as it operates within the past and the comfort of the present. Wait, can you repeat that? What? I can. I can. <laughs> complacency actually gives permission for passion to thrive as okay. long as it operates within the past and the comfort of the present. So it sounds like complacency waters down our passion. Can it, you give an example of what you mean? It absolutely does. When we become a Christian, and not going let, to, let's look at it this way. You become a Christian, and you say, okay, I'm saved. And that gives you the sense of, ah, got there. I'm good now. That is what complacency is. In, in, in the prosperity gospel, it's all about being comfortable. It's all about praying for comfort, looking for comfort. You're looking for exactly the opposite of what Christianity calls you to. So it can give permission for passion because you can be passionate about finding that comfort. And that's not what Jesus is about. Not at all, not even remotely. So we have to be careful of this. Let's go to another example. The next example, now we, we've looked at complacency. Let's look at an example of misplaced passion and the best example in Scripture I can think of is Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus before he becomes the Apostle Paul. Jonathan, let's go to Acts 26, 9 to 14 uh, to, to take a look at that, that experience. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, 
I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Well, Rick, when he said he was furiously enraged, that's improper passion. Uh, what happened to love thy neighbor? Yeah, what happened to the law? What happened to fulfilling the law that he was this Pharisee of Pharisees is supposed to do? And, you know, when you, you read this comment, he says he's, he's expressing where he was. And he says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things. I'm reasoning within myself. I'm building up this passion, and it was wrong. It was unjust. It was unlawful. But because the chief priests blessed his efforts, he poured himself into it. And you're right. It was entirely wrong. Saul's passion consumed him. He would serve God by destroying Christianity at all costs. And Rick, it seems that most people's passion, quote, for Christ, end quote, is a place of comfort and not a place of scriptural principle. And that is exactly what it was for Paul. He was comfortable in this, in this, in this chasing down of these innocent individuals. He was comfortable and as he poured himself into this. Well, you, we all know the story. We all know what happened while he is doing this. Jonathan, let's finish verses 12 to 14, and this is where Jesus appears in his life. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that's an odd statement, kick against the goads, or the King James calls it kick against the pricks. So goads were thin pieces of timber with pointy ends of iron used to encourage a stubborn ox to move. And sometimes an ox would kick against it, hurting itself against the sharp point. So the effect of kicking against the goads is stabbing yourself. And this is a way of saying Paul's actions were futile because he was headed in the wrong direction. Jesus was goading or steering him in the right direction. So Paul's persecution of Christians was hurting himself because it was wrong. He had a zeal for God, and it was recognizable, and Jesus took that zeal and corrected it and focused it. Those Though Saul's passion was out of control and actually feeding the complacent authority of the chief priest that we spoke about, he was in his heart. He was seeking God. There's no question about it. Jesus proved his heavenly authority, and Saul redirected his passion in an instant. He immediately turned, and that's how we know he was all about serving God, because he immediately turned. He didn't have to say, well, wait, 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 let me reason this out with you. It was what do I do, Lord? How do, how do I serve you? So it was a wonderful example of putting passion in the right place. So Jonathan, we take a look at this introduction. What's our passion perspective here? Is my passion contributing to feeding a broken and unfulfilled present? Is my passion helping me and those around me to grow towards Jesus or to grow in complacency? And, and I want to add a few questions. How is the Bible transforming me? Jonathan, you mentioned feeding. Am I consuming, ready for this, the comfort food of complacency or the high-protein diet of spiritual growth? Is my fishbowl too small? Yeah, and, and, and really, what am I feeding myself? You know, folks, we have the choice spiritually as to what we feed ourselves. We can say, well, I get what I go to get from church. Well, you have a choice in all of that. We need to be clear 
on complacency versus passion versus spiritual passion and understand where we're going. It is already obvious that we cannot just apply ourselves to our passion without knowing where it will lead. How do we determine which passions of ours will bring spiritual fruit and which will bring chaos? How do we determine? By paying attention to the dangers of complacency and the benefits of appropriately, fo uh, appropriately focused passion simultaneously, we can develop a clear understanding of what to look for and what to do. So we have to focus on both together. Our whole objective here is to adopt a passion that feeds off of being a true disciple of Christ. And that's the key. Adopt a passion that is fed by something very, very specific, and it's fed by discipleship. And that is one of the absolute keys here if we're going to decide to truly be Christian in our passion. The complacency revealed in the next soundbite, we're going to go back to Why uh, Comfort Will Ruin Your Life by Bill Ekstrom. The complacency revealed in this next soundbite is going to give us a beginning contrast point for what discipleship fueled passion actually looks like. So now remember, he's talking about living in the world and doing worldly things, but he's giving us principles for understanding our environment and focusing it so we can use this on a spiritual level. He's going to be talking about, remember he talked about rings, he's going to be talking about the order ring. Coming back down the growth rings next to stagnation is the most desirable environment, order. Order is knowing that what you do or what is happening in your environment leads to a predictable outcome. And in predictability, comfort is found. But comfort is also what makes order so dangerous. Because science shows that anytime you continually do something or even think about something the same way, you'll eventually stop growing. And this applies to every living thing, even our dog. You see, if Aspen had a chance, she'd choose comfort six days a week and twice on Sundays. But too much growth-limiting order would have prevented her from becoming a therapy dog. And had this been allowed, think of the lives this gentle soul would not be touching today. So before your order continues to limit the way you think and act, remember what I said earlier. Growth only occurs in a state of discomfort. So we're trying to find a balance. Too much passion makes us crazy and too much comfort makes us lazy. <laughs> but I was reminded this week that even comfort can be an idol. Uh, but sometimes when we seek comfort and order, it is appropriate. And I wanted to bring this up because we call that rest. We absolutely need physical and mental rest in order to not burn out to the point where we are of no use to anyone. Yeah, it sounds like you've been talking to my wife. She continually... She con <laughs> She'd she like you to take a rest? She continually reminds me of the idea of Sabbath. Sabbath is a, a scriptural principle that we need to take very, very seriously, and, and it's an incredibly important reminder. So yes, order is something that can create complacency, but there is a measure of order that really does help us focus in appropriately. Now, here's the thing. Jesus upended the religious order of his day and exampled the passion of living to do God's will. And in one statement, you can see how he completely turns everything upside down. Jonathan, let's look to Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
in those days to take up a cross is to go to torture and death. This, you want to talk about radical thinking for their time, for our time, for any time? He's saying, if you want to follow me, you're going to do what? You're going to take the order of the day and put it aside because there is a different kind of order that's higher, that's growth-oriented that I'm going to show you, but you need to follow in my steps. And for a closer look, I would recommend episode 1170, Does Being a Christian Have to Be Difficult? And there we examined what discipleship is and what it's not. So search 1170 at christianquestions.com or on the Christian Questions app for the audio and the CQ Rewind show notes. So Julie, we're going to focus these things now on what we call passion-fueled discipleship. Take us through the first point. We're going to keep coming down to several passion-fueled discipleship points through the rest of our conversation. Well, a passion-fueled discipleship doesn't thrive on feelings of self-fulfillment, but it does thrive on following a compelling and godly vision. And this isn't an easy passion to log on to. We need to see the big picture. So something, is, it's got to be big. You've got to be able to lock onto something that's outside of yourself. So Rick, our discipleship can't be emotion-fueled or peer pressure-fueled, and it can't be comfort-fueled. No, it's got to be bigger. It's got to come from the outside in, and all of those things you mentioned are from the inside out. So that's good. That helps us put things in perspective. The prophet Habakkuk, Old Testament prophet, was given tremendous insight and hope through a vision, though he saw that vision as a catastrophic series of events. He saw catastrophe. So we're going to drop in on Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Wow. Haven't most of us felt this way at some point? Like, God, are you listening? Don't you see what's happening here? What are you going to do about it? Yeah, history does repeat itself. Habakkuk, back then, he saw the chaos and misery of sin and rebellion against God. And he saw it as overwhelming forces. And he went on to basically say to God, and I'm doing a lot of paraphrasing here, you know, hello, God, are you there? You're mighty. Remember, they're not. You're strong. They're not. Why don't you stop the mess? That was Habakkuk's message to God. Now, he needed to receive a message, but that was the sense that he was in. And the next soundbite that we're going to be looking at from Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life by Bill Ekstrom, the next soundbite illustrates how Habakkuk learned to accept the growth that God presented him. This is the complexity ring. When you feel discomfort hit, that means you've entered the complexity ring. Complexity is nothing more than changed order. But when your order is changed, outcomes are no longer predictable, and it's unpredictability that makes you uncomfortable. And while most times, your visceral response to discomfort is no, you can actually learn how empowering it is to consciously acknowledge discomfort, and then when appropriate, choose complexity over order. And I know seeking discomfort sounds odd, and not many people do it, but you have to learn to embrace it. 
because it's the only environment where sustained or exponential growth can occur. So I've been thinking about this, and one small example might be when I had the opportunity to go to Israel with our church group, and uh, Jonathan's son was on that trip too. That's right. uh, it was definitely out of my comfort zone, going to a foreign country, different language, different currency, grueling schedule, but I was able to see the Bible, and that was invaluable and worth the anxiety. But in t- thinking about this topic, 1 Corinthians 15, comes to mind. That says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So I think that we can use the time in our lives when we do have order as kind of a big reset button to get strength in the Lord until we have to deal with that next big thing that comes upon us. But order should be a tool to help us grow in our Christian walk and not be the destination of relaxation for us. Right, because life is going to bring you to that complexity ring, to where things are out of order and things feel that you have this great insecurity that surrounds you. That's what Habakkuk was feeling. God's answer to Habakkuk was that, Everything that was happening was in accordance with his, with God's plan. Habakkuk needed to develop passion for the knowledge of God's future plans unfolding in spite of the chaos of what was happening right in front of him in that day. He needed to see the bigger picture, not just react to the circumstances, the current events, if you will. That does sound familiar to where we are today. Here is Habakkuk's reaction now that God has said, all right, I'm giving you a message. You gave me your message. Let me give you mine. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tables that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So as a result of this conversation with God, Habakkuk stopped being passionate about trying to correct God, about all the evil he saw from his perspective, and he starts seeing it from God's ultimate vantage point. Wouldn't this apply to us? We need to learn God's plan so that we can bring comfort to those around us and stop trying to correct God and tell him we know better. Well, where it said, though it tarries, wait for it, it might seem to take a long time, but in God's plan, evil will be permitted only for a time and for an eternal lesson. Sin brings sorrow and pain. God's righteous laws brings happiness and blessing. So Habakkuk had to understand that and write this down so others could understand it as well. That's his message. That's his passion. That's his place. It's to take what God told him and make it available to others. That's a passion with a godly focus. So Jonathan, when we look at this example, what's our passion perspective here? Is my passion based on a clear understanding of what God's plan will bring and what my potential role might be? Is this understanding just knowledge, or does it move me? We can go to uh, go and 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 to, to church and and read scripture, and we can learn things. But are we moved by them? Not not from an emotional perspective, but moved to action. That's what happened with Habakkuk. 
And uh, passion-fueled discipleship, let's talk about that. It doesn't dwell on the past, but rather it focuses on learning from the past and raising the standards of the present to a higher level of godliness in Christ. So many people are stuck with either guilt, regret, or letting injustices against us fester and all put up unnecessary roadblocks to get to our future. Our past follows us, but shouldn't be tied around our leg, preventing us from moving forward. Right. Our past is going to follow us through our lives. But you know what? You need to learn to put it into a box and reference it only when necessary. It shouldn't be dragging us down. It should just be something that we have to reference. And we'll see that actually in these next verses, because we're going to be looking at instilling godly passion of necessity. It includes warnings against complacency. The Apostle Paul did this in Philippians 3, 1 to 11. We're going to break this into 1 to 6 and 7 to 11, but listen to how he sets this up, this warning and then this advice. Jonathan, uh, Philippians 3, 1 to 6. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of false circumcision, For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to be put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as of the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Well, Rick, Paul could have dwelled in his past. I've arrived. I'm good. I don't need to prove anything. But he didn't. He didn't. He took the past and he walked away from it because serving Christ was much higher. Godly passion takes the lessons of what was and couples those lessons with the lessons of what now is and sets us up for a productive present. And here's the key. We can set up ourselves for a complacent present, or we can allow God's will to set us up for a productive present. You have a choice. You choose. But what is it that you that Jesus would want you to do? Jonathan, uh, Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ— More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I like when uh, Apostle Paul says, I count them but rubbish. In other words, my past is trash. I learned from it and threw the rest away, because being in Christ is everything. It is. It's, It's everything, and it's everything necessary. So your past brought you here. Thank you, past. Now go away. Because now I am on a new path, a stronger path that is not driven by my emotions or, or circumstances. It's driven by God's providence and God's holy word. Jonathan, let's give a passion perspective on this. Does my passion accept what my past has taught me while walking away from it? Does it fuel the discipleship principles of my present? And does it drive me to serve God? Is my passion truly bringing me towards God through Christ 
or is it bringing me towards something else, anything else? We need to be able to ask ourselves those questions because those are the important questions. Not only do we need to see the big picture, we also need to be engaged in how that vision changes us right now. Does our passion-fueled discipleship have to adhere to a strict rule book of orders so we may flourish in Christ? Just because we've talked about having order in our lives as being a fertile ground for complacency is not an excuse to avoid order. On the contrary, spiritual passion flourishes on doing God's will and not our own. And that's exactly what Jesus did. See, our challenge here is to have our order come from God. It's got to come from above. Our order has to come from God and not from ourselves. So you mentioned Jesus, but it sounds like instead of the title, Am I Passionate or Complacent About Jesus, the title really should have been to this episode, Are We Passionate About the Gospel Message? Because we haven't really talked about being passionate or complacent about Jesus. See, good question. But in my mind, I, I can't I can't separate the gospel message from Jesus. Because when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me, what's he saying? He's saying, I am delivering the message of good news, and it's going to cost me. And I want you to follow me, and you need to be involved in that delivery of that good news and understand it like we were saying before, so that you can be like me. So yeah, if you want to love Jesus then you need to love the message of the gospel. You need to love the sacrifice and love the opportunity and love the goodness and love the hope and love the kingdom and love the resurrection because that's what Jesus lived for. I cannot separate loving Jesus from loving the gospel. And if we just love Jesus, that's nice. That, to me, that's a little golf clap. That's good. That's a good little start. <laughs> but you need to expand that. It's got to be bigger than that in our lives. All right, so let me ask you kind of a delicate question. Some people, especially those who may have become Christians later in life, can be, mm, how do I say this, over the top gushing about their love for Jesus. And that makes me a little uncomfortable and I'm not quite sure why. And I'm wondering if maybe that kind of witness in Christianity turns people off rather than attracting them to the message because it comes on a little strong. Or if I'm not like that, like over the top, does that mean my faith is weaker? Well, first of all, uh, we want to be careful about emotion. Emotion is good in its place, but emotion is not the driver of the gospel. And if we're trying to witness about Jesus to others, and we we're, and it's really it's that like you're talking about that gushing, we might be missing the whole point for the person we're witnessing to, because the witness should be about the message of hope, the message of salvation, the message of why Jesus died. And look, it's not just for your sins, but it's for the sins of the whole world. And did you know that there's a resurrection? And did you know that there's a reconciliation? And did you know all of the things that Jesus provides? So. Yeah, we want to be careful not to be overly emotional because that sometimes clouds the message of the good news. Jesus was about the gospel. So when we talk about Jesus, by necessity, we need to be showing what the gospel actually is. So let's take a look at this. Uh, again, let's go back to Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life by Bill Ekstrom. Uh, now we've, we've talked about those, those rings. Now we're going to go to triggers for these kinds of issues. And this, this becomes very fascinating. Complexity trigger number one is it can be forced upon you. 
When I got fired, I didn't have a chance to stay in order. Complexity was selected for me. And when this happens, how much you grow depends on how you respond to it. Now, I could have remained angry. I could have used it as an excuse. But what I, what I actually learned is that I suck as an employee. And I'm much better off accepting the risks of running my own company. Complexity trigger number two. Someone can help you get there. This is the role of parents, teachers, coaches, and bosses. Because left on their own, people will consciously or subconsciously select the comfort of order. And they then need to be pushed into complexity in order to continue growing. So, you know, we can easily want to choose the, com- the, the complexity of order. We like that. But we need something bigger, something stronger. And, and I'll tell you what, if you want to see something that, that takes things out of order, try starting to do a radio program weekly when you've never done one before. Right, Jonathan? Yeah, 23 years ago. Yeah, 23 years ago. And and so, Jonathan, let me ask you, you know, just in in your Christian questions experience, you and I have been at this for 23 years. What have you learned just for yourself in terms of passion and focus and and understanding through going through this for all of this time? Well, Rick, this is a big picture lesson for me. I count it a privilege to be part of the Christian questions team and co-labor with over 50 volunteers. Everyone's passion inspires me to do my part as best as I can in sharing God's wonderful plan of salvation for all. My passion comes from the reality that God is love and that he called me to represent his truth. The weight of responsibility drives me. What I've learned over the last 23 years in God's uh, word through Christian questions is beyond what I could have done on my own. It's a gift I never wanna take for granted. I thank the Lord for his kindness shown to me and those that receive a blessing from our efforts. Tell you, Jonathan, as you're saying that, I'm saying to myself, amen, brother. Amen, brother, because your, your, your experience in many ways mirrors my own. And it is, it's a growth experience, and it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of change, and it, and it takes a lot of shaking up. And the complexity is good because it takes us away from our emotion and brings us to something higher. Thanks for that. Appreciate the the personal experience. Julie, let's go on to a passion-fueled discipleship point here. Sure. A passion-fueled discipleship doesn't embrace a self-directed pathway. Rather, it seeks and embraces a clearly defined spiritual process to release its energy. And for me, that's good. I like a clearly defined process, so I know if I'm hitting the right milestones and when. And, And that really does sound like, Jonathan, what you just explained. Athletes here are a great example. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. you got to practice the right things to perfect things. Let's look at the example of an athlete in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Let's do 24 and 25 to start. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So basically, Paul is saying, get your head right to get in the game. That's right. Exercise self-control in all things. Self-control comes from your mind. You have to put your mind in the game before your body is going to react the way it needs to. The mental side of the game here is focus. It's abiding by the rules. It's self-control. It's knowing what victory looks like. And before we get to the physical side, just remember, we have to listen to the coach. 
every good athlete has a great coach. Jesus is our coach, and we'll get to a verse very shortly. He's about as him being the author and finisher of our faith. We follow his guidance to be able to do this. Now let's talk about the physical side of the game in this 1 Corinthians scripture, the doing side of the game, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul was talking about applying muscle memory, both physical and mental, to the actual daily engagement of discipleship. We have to learn it so well that it becomes somewhat instinctive to follow through in a godly fashion. Our knee-jerk reaction needs to do the right thing, grow, learn, and hopefully we will develop these instincts over time. And it's the knee-jerk reaction is developed to a spiritual level. It's not natural. It's developed higher. Next, let's do a look at another example. Paul walks us through the discipleship process of transformation in a very simple way in these next verses. And this is, uh, these are going to be from Philippians chapter 4. And the passion-fueled discipleship here is shown in an outward display first, an outward display of sincerity. Philippians 4, 4 through 9, let's do 4 through 7 to start. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's funny, words like gentle spirit, don't be anxious, peace of God. This doesn't sound passionate. It sounds very calm. There is incredible power in calmness. There's incredible passion in a calmness that is driven. And that's what Jesus showed us in so many ways. And so, yes, it is calm. It is graciously calm and therefore graciously passionate. Now let's get to the inward focus. The the passion-fueled discipleship has an inward focus in these verses as well, and it's on godliness above everything else. We're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Talks about dwelling on things. That means the inside working of your mind. This is where we fuel the passion of Christ. It's not emotional. It's learning. It's focusing. It's meditating. It's developing. It's helping us take step by step by step, moving forward and following in the steps of our Lord Jesus. Jonathan, what's our passion perspective here? Is my passion still tied up in my own will and plans, or is it founded solely on what the scriptures show me are the most important things? Is my passion an example of human thinking or spiritual mindedness? Have to ask ourselves these questions when we're looking in the mirror. Where is my passion leading? And folks, look, let's be honest. And if it's not leading us in the right direction, great. You've just figured that out. Now you can learn to change it and put yourself into the right kind of place. So, Julie, what's our next passion-fueled discipleship point? 
Well, it's not expressed in haphazard, spur-of-the-moment actions. Rather, it's committed to be expressed within the confines of the discipline of walking in Jesus' own footsteps. Okay, the discipline of walking in Jesus' own footsteps. Now, Julie, for you, you've been working with Christian Questions for, what, 11 years now? Uh, Yeah, back in uh, 2010. And so from your experience here and the things that you've learned— Put it, put it in the perspective of what we're talking about with this disciple, uh, passion-fueled discipleship. Well, before I started volunteering with CQ, my life was a circle, and that circle was really home, um, work, recreation, and then my weekly church and Bible study was kind of on the outer ring of the circle. It impacted my life, but it wasn't consciously the center of it. So, uh, you know, back 11 years ago, when I started out by typing up the CQ Rewind show notes every week for the listeners to follow along with the audio, this required me to set aside several weeknights after work to finish it. And it forced me to really marinate with the lessons, having to listen over and over to what you both said while I tried to type it. And by the way, Rick, you talk really fast. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, over time, my role expanded, and now I'm blessed to be an on-air contributor periodically. But the discipline of finding the extra hours it takes to study for this has really benefited me. My inner circle is taken up by God and Bible study more so than ever before, and I just need to make sure that it's transforming me to be better so that it's a true investment of time. So basically what you're saying is you put yourself in a position of responsibility and contribution, and that puts you in the position of having to be surrounded by growth opportunity. Right, and accountability, because I'm accountable to you and I'm accountable to everyone else in the group that needs the work that I'm doing. And that's true of all of us. We are mutually accountable. So, so folks, the example is that by working, trying to work, trying to contribute to the gospel in whatever way we can, we can it can change us, and it will change us if we allow it to, if we allow ourselves to grow through this. So thank you for your example, and uh, you know all of the Secret Rewind grew out of that. The show notes, all of those things grew out of that, that, that contribution that started 11 years ago. Let's move forward. The power of passionate example of others fuels our own focus on exactly what's important. First, a a very personal view that says I must be internally fixed on what I must do. Now we're going to Hebrews. I alluded to it before. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. And again, Paul gives us a picture of what our Christian passion should look like. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Talks about a cloud of witnesses, and it really is a cloud of testimonies. And look at Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter before. It's about all this faithfulness in the Old Testament. And Paul says, you look at that. That's inspirational. That's an example. Now fix your eyes on Jesus. In other words, draw the inspiration. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Nothing else. That's where Christian passion comes from. It's internal. You've got to fix your heart, fix your mind, fix your very soul on following after him because that's where our passion will come from. And it's not emotional. It's a driving action. 
Next, we're going to take a look at a very external view of this passion. This view is going to remind us that we are living epistles of Christ. We are living writings of Christ, if you will. And when somebody looks at the epistle of Rick, what are they going to read? Are they going to read Christ-likeness, or are they going to read mediocrity? That's a question we should not be afraid to ask ourselves. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Wow, Rick, let me stop right there. This sounds exciting. Yeah. You've got to wonder what Paul is doing here. Now let's continue. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praorian guard and to everyone else. Wait a minute. He's in jail. (laughs) And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. How many people do you know that talk about being in prison in a joyous way? That's what the apostle is showing us right here. He's saying It's amazing. He's saying it's working out for the good of the gospel. So I'm happy. I mean, think about that. Jonathan, let's continue. So, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of the selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So even though some were preaching the gospel out of difficulty, out of causing him strife, he's saying, hey, look, the gospel's still out there. Whatever it is, I am happy because he sees God's providence and being in prison, he said, it's good. Not for me personally, but it's good for the gospel and that's what my life is about. Paul was abundantly clear that the horrible difficulty of imprisonment was firmly within the providence of God for the sake of the gospel Furthering the gospel was his life passion, and he therefore was in a state of gratitude while in prison. So, Jonathan, as we wrap this up, let's take a passion perspective and put this all in perspective. Does the heat of my passion vary based on my reactions to what is happening to me, or is it steady flame of God's will be done that continuously is burning through me? Again, ask ourselves, what is driving the passion that is in me? Is it emotional or is it something that's driven by something so much larger? Godly passion is obviously squarely based on moving God's will forward no matter what is happening around me. How can godliness with contentment is great gain and having strong passion for Jesus work together? One of the primary directives of a successful Christian life is that of an accepting and contented life. This is important because we usually don't know all of the reasons for our experiences as they are in place by the providence of God. So now, if this sounds like an invitation to be laid back, well, think again. It's not. Godly contentment is not godly complacency. Don't confuse the two. And when it comes down to contentment, you know, whether our personality is one way or another, whether we're very structure-oriented or very technical or very action-oriented or very relationship-oriented, the principle of godly passion is always the same. It will manifest differently depending on who you are, but it's not emotion-driven. It is gospel-driven. It is Jesus-driven. Let's talk about contentment and what godly contentment really is because it's a very focused thing. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. 
But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the Apostle Paul here is focusing Timothy on godly contentment. And he's saying Christian contentment has to do with not desiring worldly things, lavish lifestyles or excess in any area of our life. Such desires attach us to a worldly wealth mentality that breeds spiritual complacency. You can't have a worldly wealth mentality. You can't be about the stuff and the cars and the homes and, and, and all of those things and still be about Jesus first, the gospel first. The two don't mix. So we can't be content only when things are orderly in our lives. Right. We have to find contentment even in those times of complexity and chaos. Contentment, I see it kind of like an umbrella over it all because we know that no matter what's happening to us or around us, if we are true, dedicated Christians, then God's providence is overruling our experiences. And that, that is the truth, being a true, dedicated, no matter your personality. And I want to stress that because some of us are not, don't have the outside drive that others have. doesn't mean you can't be passionate. It just expresses itself in a different way. Let's take a look. Our last soundbite is going to, from why will comfort will ruin your life with Bill Ekstrom, is about complexity trigger th- number three. And it's about a young woman that most of you probably have never heard about. But once you hear this, you're going to think, wow, this is something very special. This is a history-changing action by a very young lady not too, 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 too long ago. So complexity trigger number three, trigger it yourself. Take a journey with me back to Montgomery, Alabama in the 1950s. And imagine, if you will, a young girl who's black, and she attends an all-black high school. And she takes a city bus to get there and home, which wasn't unusual in that era. And on March 2nd, 1955, she boards the bus to come home from school, and she sits near the back in the first row of seats where blacks were allowed to sit. And as the bus continues to fill with white people, there's eventually no more room in the front of the bus. And according to local law, she needed to move further back to create room for white people to sit. Montgomery had an order in place that one followed led to a very predictable outcome. Repression of people with little conflict. But 15-year-old Claudette Colvin had just spent the last month in high school studying black history. And she was understandably fed up with the historic and existing atrocities. And so on this day, she decided she didn't like Montgomery's order. And by refusing to give up her seat, she sent a community our laws, and our entire country into complexity. Yes, nine months before Rosa Parks made her famous decision to stay put, it was a 15-year-old girl that was handcuffed, dragged from the bus, and taken to prison. It was Miss Colvin, not Rosa Parks, who first fought the law, and by the way, was also the star plaintiff to testify in the famous lawsuit that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm sad that I never knew her name before now. It seems like a story we should all know. It does. And the strength and the courage of this very young woman in the face of all kinds of adversity, you know that wasn't emotion-driven. See, there's much more to it. It was something that was bigger. 
and it needed to disrupt the simple order, even though the order made everybody just kind of move along in, in, in a fashion where nobody's going to create waves. She said, enough, enough. And this 15-year-old girl was a big part in changing American history. Thank goodness for that. So, Julie, let's move on. Next, passion-fueled discipleship. It finds its courage not in being fired up emotionally, but in being firmly rooted in the biblical truths of its calling. So the kind of passion we're talking about puts the emotional ups and downs aside and moves forward to accomplish the will of God, whether we feel like it at that point or not. And in my own experience, I, there have been plenty of times, I've asked the two of you about you know your Christian questions experience, and mine, there have been times where, no, I did not, I did not feel like it, especially at the times when my family was going through some deep traumas and, and, and difficult things. There, there was not an energy. There was not this, this, wow, I get to do this now. It's, oh my goodness, I have to do this now. And it was a, it was a chore, and it was a difficulty, and it was a challenge, and I felt like quitting sometimes. But by God's grace, he helped me stretch in a way that I thought was beyond. And I woke up several months later saying, wow, look at the difference. Look at what he's taught me. Look at what he teaches me. And I've never forgotten that lesson. We can stretch. This is what passion is. It's stretching, letting God's providence stretch you beyond what you think is your capacity. Let him decide, not you. It sounds like you had spiritual muscle memory that could pull you through to see a higher perspective. Developed small step by small step by small step. Let's move forward here. Paul, in the next scripture, addresses the contentment issue and directly connects its resolution to his firm stance on reliance on spiritual strength and guidance instead of needing an emotional rush. And folks, it's not about emotion. It's about driving forward however your character helps you do that. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. These are really good scriptures to memorize. We never want to forget God when things are at their worst or when things are growing really well. Paul had the worst and the best, and those external circumstances didn't change his outlook or his goals respecting the gospel message. That's my favorite part about the Apostle Paul. And, and that is a huge, huge lesson. His, his needs at, at this point were very physical, and they were not emotional. And he's writing to the Philippians about it. His passion for Christ depended on God's providence and nothing more. Now, the Philippians helped him. Financially, they helped him. He said, thank you. But if you hadn't, I'd still be okay because it's God's providence. Even if his needs were not met, he was still passionately focused. And emotional highs aren't sustainable. Fireworks are momentary. So we don't look at that, that emotional high as our sign of growth. Our change of character is the, the sign of growth, developing the fruit of the Spirit. And absolutely true. God's promises 
transform us. The power of his influence in our lives brings us far beyond the pictures of strength and vitality in our world. We were talking about athletes a little while ago. Well, the key here, the key in this next scripture is to wait upon the Lord for his strength, his guidance, his stretching, to be completely absorbed in his direction and not how we might feel. And folks, a lot of you know this scripture. It's very, very, very inspirational to focus us on uh, appropriate discipleship passion. Isaiah 40, uh, 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So the comparison here is that all of the emotional hype and energy that the best of humanity can muster is no match for godly strength. And, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about being weary and tired and doing the work of Christ, you know, we know that whenever you tell Jonathan or I, it's okay, I got this. You know, I seem to be, I, I, I can do this. This is okay. You know, whatever it is that was new that you learned, you were like, all right, I got it. And we're like, oh, no, that means <laughs> something new is coming. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you have that time period where you, like, can breathe and you've got it all under control and then blammo, something new happens the Lord has in mind for you. And that's a good thing. And that is, that, that is the wonderment of God's providence, because the stretching should never end. And folks, that's what, that's what Christian passion is. It's not about how you feel. It's about moving forward and being able to serve in a stronger way. Let's finish this up. Finally, appropriate single-minded Christian passion is a renewable energy source. And it's God-fueled, so we know it's a renewable energy. Fill her up. <laughs> <laughs> Even the Apostle Paul, after all that he did in God's service, always saw the uplifting opportunity to get better and to continue striving, Philippians three twelve to 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, having this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So, Rick, Paul took... Uh, nothing for granted. He was still working and growing in Christ. He absolutely was. So we want to see that, we want to focus on that, and put it in perspective. Jonathan, what's our final passion perspective here? It is obvious that complacency is an enemy of Christian growth. While fighting this enemy, we need to remember that misplaced and fleshly-fueled passions are also serious challenges toward discipleship. Let us press forward in the single-minded footsteps of Jesus, knowing that our God will provide the strength and courage needed to those who wait on him. So, folks, really what this comes down to is understanding that whatever your personality is, wherever you're coming from, if you are a disciple of Christ, your job is to put yourself in a position where you can be used of God 
where you can be used to promote the gospel, to up, uphold the brotherhood, to be an example, to live in a way that you are a living epistle. Even if you're not out in front with the microphone, even if you're one behind doing the proofreading, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you are focused on being Christ-like to the best of your ability. That's the passion that drives Christianity, and that's the passion that drives our faith. Think about it. Folks, listen, we do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us and review us. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, are my Christian beliefs based on truth or error? Now, a lot of this may have to do with passion versus complacency versus Christ-driven passion. Are my Christian beliefs based on truth or error? We'll talk to you next week.